Welcome. We're glad that you're able to worship with us today. My name is Ward Shope, and I'm on staff here at New Life. Maybe you haven't had an opportunity to worship with us before, but we'd encourage you, if that's true, to text the word CONNECT to the phone number that you see below, and that way we'll get a chance to know each other a little bit better. Some of you may know the song, The Steadfast Love of the Lord. It's a song that I learned when a group of students together traveled to Israel, and we sang this this as a worship song together. And the song goes like this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. So the words of the song are actually scripture, and they come from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22. And by learning the song, I actually memorize scripture as a result of that. And we, we've used that kind of technique in our children's ministry. We found songs that use scripture as their text, or sometimes we've had a Bible verse that we want our children to learn, and somebody like Casey and Janae, who led our worship earlier on, write the tune for those words. And our hope is that even the youngest child will be able to memorize scripture. They may not understand what it means exactly at this moment, but as they get older and the song sticks with them, then God begins to speak to them through that song of scripture. Well, this morning, as we move toward the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is about ready to teach a song to the Israelites. In a society where very few people were able to read and where there was very little to read, singing was a way to help them to remember what God was speaking to them. So this morning, as we consider the song of Moses, we're going to consider three things. First, what is the reason that Moses taught this song to the Israelites? The second is the content of the song. What is the song about? And finally, we're going to consider God's character and his nature that we see reflected actually throughout all the song here. But before we get to that, let's just join together in a word of prayer. Father, this morning, we pray that you will teach us, teach our hearts and our minds to hear your word, to understand the graciousness that you've given us in Jesus Christ, and to also remember the warnings that you've given us from wandering away. Lord, help us to hear what you have us to learn and change us to be more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we first want to consider the reason that Moses taught this song. I'll be reading from chapter 31 in Deuteronomy, verses 16 through 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and who are after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them. In that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, 
Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. So if you've been following us through the book of Deuteronomy, you remember that this book is Moses' last speech before he's about ready to leave them, actually go up on the mountain and die and hand the leadership over to Joshua. He's trying trying to remember, he's trying to remind them of the grace of God as he led them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into a loving relationship with him because he loved them. Yahweh, which is God's proper name, loves them and has explained the way that their relationship works so that it thrives, so that they receive his blessings as they follow the rules of that relationship with one another. Several chapters before the scripture that we're reading this morning, there's a couple of chapters on the blessings that God will give his people if they remain faithful to him, and then also the consequences of what will happen if they're not faithful to him. And last week, Anthony preached how we hear that Moses is now calling the Israelite nation to renew the covenant that he made with them, first by giving them the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt. And in chapter 31, the Israelites are actually told to renew this covenant every seven years. So there's a good chance that this song may have actually been sung every seven years as the Israelites renewed that covenant. But these words that the Lord speaks to Moses here are very discouraging because God is telling them that the Israelites will fail. And Moses has invested a lot of energy in instructing them and encouraging them and correcting them and rebuking them and pleading for them and interceding for them. And now as he's about ready to leave them and turn over the leadership, he recognizes that they will fail in that relationship despite everything that he's done. But God, in his wisdom, gives them a song as a witness for them to hear. As it says in Deuteronomy 31, 21, And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. So that even in their unfaithfulness, they will remember the song and they will remember the goodness of the Lord and his graciousness towards them and his love for them. And they will also be reminded of their sin so that it would serve as a warning and turn them back in repentance to serve God. We need witnesses like this in our own lives. We need, and we find those witnesses primarily in the scripture. We need the scripture to warn us, to remind us of how to be faithful to God, and to warn us against our unfaithfulness. And the Bible becomes that witness as we read it. Paul gives us an example as he reads from the New the Ten Commandments in Romans 7, and he's reminded of his own sin. He says in Romans 7, 7 and 8, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. 
It isn't as if Paul becomes more covetous because he reads this law. Rather, he becomes aware of all the covetous desires that he has in his life, how he's discontented with God has given him and hopes for other things that will fulfill his own desires and satisfy ideas of satisfaction. In the same way, James reminds us of our prayerlessness itself and that often when we do pray, we pray only about the things that we're concerned and not about and not the things that God is concerned about. And so he writes in James 4, verses 2 and 3, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And when I read Philippians 3, verses 6 and 7, then I'm reminded that I often don't handle my anxiety well. And Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. It calls me to recommit my faith to God, my trust in God, even in those moments when I am anxious, and to give my anxiety over to him so that I might experience his peace in my life. As we contemplate the words of Scripture, they become a witness to us of what it means to live faithfully and often how we fail to live faithfully. Jack Miller coined these words, cheer up, you're worse than you think. And as we read the scripture, we recognize the sinfulness within our own lives and the depth of our sin is revealed. But this is actually good because as we become aware of our sin, as we hear this witness from the Lord, it's not meant to encourage us to be guilty because God has already taken care of our guilt. Instead, it reminds us of the graciousness of God, of how much he loves us, because he wants, he's done everything that's necessary to bring us back into relationship with him. God's love is greater than anything we ever imagined. This is the purpose of the song that Moses gave to the Israelites, to be able to identify their sinfulness and in repentance receive God's blessing and his graciousness as they turn back to him. And then they will be able to renew the covenant all over again with him as beloved children. So what is it that they need to remember? What is the content of this song? We used Deuteronomy 32, 1-4 in our call to worship this morning. Let me read those again for you. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his word is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The beginning of the song is a reminder of who God is. He is great. He's just. He's holy. He's faithful in his relationships. He's worthy of all our worship and awe. He's called the rock, not simply because he's big and stable, but because he protects us from the sun in the desert when it shines brightly. He protects us from the wind when it blows hard. He protects us 
from the battle arrows that come at us. He's our refuge. You can always count on he, what, who he will be. He's not arbitrary or fickle, and you don't have to guess what kind of mood he is in. Furthermore, God as the God, God as a sovereign king over all the earth has fixed the boundaries of the nations, but he chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be his special people. And so these words follow in the song. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. At this point, the song begins to speak of a God as a not nurturing parent of his people, beginning from the time they were in the desert until they move into the promised land when God brought them there. And so we read in Deuteronomy 32, 10 to 14, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them and bearing them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. Yahweh found them in the desert and he adopted them as his children. The, the song uses this desert image of an eagle that makes its nest and raises its young up on, on the cleft. And as the young are growing, the eagle teaches them how to, to thrive, how to fly, just as God taught his people as he brought them out, how to be faithful in their relationship through the Ten Commandments. God gives them only the best food and drink for his children, for their pleasure and for their growth. Honey and oil from the rock, which is probably a reference to the water that they miraculously received from rock, what, the rock while they were in the desert. Curds, milk, the tenderest meat full of fat from rams and goats, the finest wheat and the best of wine. Yahweh provides generously and lovingly from all that he has. God takes the same interest in believers today because God's character continues to be the same today as it was then. God chooses us who are believers out of all the peoples to be his children. So we read, for instance, in Ephesians 1, 5 to 6, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Or consider these words from John in 1 John chapter 3, where he talks about the wonder of just being God's child. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We have everything that we need to thrive. He's given us redemption through his son. He's given us his spirit to cry out within us, Abba, Father, and to change us and to make us more like God. And he promises to be with us forever. So Romans 8, 18 is a reminder of God's faithfulness in the long run. For I consider that the sufferings at this present time, whatever they may be for us, are not worthy in comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the way our covenant God feels about us. But how do we respond? This is where the song identifies his people as an ungrateful and rebellious teenager. Despite the promises that God gives to his people, we often do not reciprocate them. So as God has adopted the Israelites as his portion and cared for them and taught them, they did not consider that to be enough for them. Deuteronomy 32, 15 to 18 has these words for us. But Jeshuron, which is another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were remindful, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Moses warns the Israelites that they will become like adolescent children who take all the blessings and all the advantages from their parents for granted and figure that there's something else out there for them. They become discontented and bored with the rules of the house There must be something better somewhere else, they say to themselves, something more exciting, something more adventurous. And so they search for other gods, convinced that they will give them something that Yahweh has not given them. What does the rest of the world have to offer us, they say? And their attitude also changes like an adolescent child who's spoiled. They're sure of their own wisdom and their strength. They're arrogant and unteachable. In fact, we can remember many times when we were younger that we were thought we were smarter than we actually were at the time, that we were better looking than we actually were at the time. We're certainly better looking than we are now or that we have more to offer the world than we do now. Sometimes we've seen this in our own church families, children who may or may not have directly turned away from the faith and yet have followed the wanderings of their own hearts away from the Lord and pursued other things that are not God's that are actually destroying them. But this is not simply an adolescent issue. All of us, to some extent, have done this and probably continue to do it. We pursue our own desires rather than pursuing the Lord's desires. And in terms of faith, this wandering happens at any age, whether we're 15 or 50 or 18 and 80. We're busy blazing our own trail, forgetting the goodness that we've received from the Lord 
and the one who's given us our gifts and our abilities and the circumstances uh, in which we do things and find our successes. God has provided all of that. We believe that there is probably something else out there that will give us more satisfaction than God does. And the Lord knows this about us and calls us back. In my own Bible reading, I've been reading the book of Jeremiah, and it's not a happy book. In fact, uh, in the part that I'm at right now, Israel is wealthy and rich. In fact, there are all kinds of wealthy people who are beautiful and who have great power, and they're oppressing the weak, and they're oppressing the poor, and there is no justice. And even though it looks very good on the outside, on the inside, they've turned around and they've begun to pursue other gods, literally, in their lives. God cannot continue to bless them, Jeremiah is telling them. They have rejected him and everything that he stands for. And they have pursued other goals. They've pursued other gods. Yahweh's only choice at that moment is tough parental love. So we read these words in Deuteronomy 32, 19 to 20. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. In essence, Yahweh decides to cut the purse strings. They have no more access to the family funds. He sends them away to suffer the, con- suffer the consequences of their choices, still watching them from afar. Many other words of discipline and judgment follow in the scripture, and I'll let you read them. But there will be famine, there'll be plague, there will be illness, there will be war, there will be natural enemies in the land, and eventually they will be exiled out of the land that was promised to them. If they want to pursue other gods, then God says, go to the other lands where those gods are and pursue them there. We are not so different in many ways. We turn away to other things to deal with the pain that we feel in our lives. We medicate ourselves, for instance, with entertainment or with pleasure or with comfort. Or maybe we turn to pornography or some other kind of addiction, whether it's secret or whether it's out in the open. These are the gods that promise to heal us, but instead they only enslave us and make things worse. They don't satisfy. And yet God's call is irrevocable. He does not give his children up. He will battle against those who have injured his child. And so he writes these words in the song. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. And when they have finally hit bottom, which is what Moses is saying, when it cannot get any worse, 
they will recognize that there is no one like the Lord. Only he can heal their wounds. Only he can restore them. Only he can give them health. Deuteronomy 32, 39, and 43 talk about their recognition of that. See now that I, even I, am he, says God, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And the people respond, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children. The song that we spoke about at the beginning, The Steadfast Love of the Lord, was written at rock bottom for the Israelites. Many years later, as Jeremiah continued to prophesy, there came the time when the Israelites were actually exiled out of the land. And he remained there in Jerusalem, and he was walking around looking at all the ruined buildings, the breaking down of the wall, and all of the other devastation that was there. And there was much pain and grief in all of that. And he wrote a book that talks about that called Lamentations. Yet these words stand out in that book. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In some way, we need to all come to this point. And while it may look for each different for each person, God's discipline takes us to a place where we can again come to him in repentance and find out that he is the only one who can heal us. He's the only one to forgive our sins in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can ultimately save us from disaster, save us from whatever pain we're experiencing in our lives, and even save us from death itself. God offers you and me the opportunity to hear the words of this song, to hear the words of this gospel song, wherever it is in scripture, and to see the sin that is in our lives and return to him and find that he is gracious and gentle and calls us into relationship for now and forever. And to respond to the protection that he gives, both for his glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that you are the only one. You are the one that gives us life and health and answers all the deepest needs that we have in our lives. Father, teach us to look to you only. Forgive us when we wander. Instead, call us back to you through your scripture that we might love you and that we might experience the blessings that you have to offer. We pray this in Jesus' name.